January 15th, 2021, marks what would have been the 92nd anniversary of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The civil rights leader, who is in many ways the spirit of modern Atlanta, has a quite storied not just death, but also funeral and burial. The desire to memorialize Dr. King is one that was established immediately following his death, but one which was not always easy in coming because of the underlying institutional racism in the South. Despite this, Dr. King's gravesite on Auburn Avenue is now one of the most visited sites in the city of Atlanta. But, as always, that journey wasn't an easy one to make. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So if you are listening to this on the day it comes out, it will be January 15th, which is Dr. King's birthday. And this is an interesting one and one I certainly wanted to do for a long time, but I think is particularly timely considering everything that's going on in the country right now, because it was very interesting for me sitting there reading newspaper articles and magazines and accounts of what led up to Dr. King's death, the immediate actions following Dr. King's death, his funeral, and even the ongoing struggle to get the King Center built here in Atlanta. My primary thought as I was reading all of this was that, wow, nothing has changed. And the King Center is such a central part of this. And actually, it was about a year ago that I visited it for the first time. And I'm a little embarrassed by that because at that point, I had lived in Atlanta for a couple of years. And Auburn Avenue was literally within walking distance of where I live. So I had no excuse not to visit. But to me, it was always, you know, I don't want to go there. It's a tourist trap. And I remember I went there on a busy weekend in January, and it indeed was a nightmare to park. And I didn't end up getting to tour the King birthplace because I went at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the first slot they had available was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by that point, I had long gone home, and I wasn't coming back. But it was worth it for me to go. And what prompted me to go was I actually had a conversation with a coworker of mine who stated that she didn't know that Martin Luther King was from Atlanta. And that was very striking to me. Notwithstanding looking at the fact that almost all major roads in Atlanta have a name that is somehow associated with the civil rights movement whether it is Andrew Young or John Lewis, the Freedom Parkway, or Hosea Williams or Ralph David Abernathy. The story of civil rights is so closely entwined with Atlanta. I was just quite frankly flabbergasted that someone, even somebody not from Atlanta, didn't know where Dr. King was from. And part of that story has to do with his funeral. Because following the death of Dr. King, riots broke out in something like 125 different cities around the United States. 39 were killed, 3,500 were wounded. It was the deadliest moment of the civil rights movement by far in this overpouring of emotion following the assassination of Dr. King. But not in Atlanta. Atlanta was Dr. King's hometown, And in many ways, if you followed the coverage of John Lewis's funeral, which 
I was very fortunate. And if you follow along on social media, you know that I, I was at Southview the day that John Lewis was buried there. I wasn't there for the whole funeral, unfortunately, because I do have a job. And I had to leave after I waited for something like three hours to see the funeral cortege. But it's still Dr. Kingstown in many ways. And if you walk along Auburn Avenue and you look at the buildings and you look at the legacy of Black Atlanta, it's still here. So it was very interesting to me to see how throughout the late 60s, through the 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, how strongly Atlanta resisted this. And there are certainly people in this story who advocated for it on a number of different levels. But also, I have to confess a lot of respect for Coretta Scott King in particular, in that she wasn't willing to just accept anyone's help. She wanted people to help in actualizing this realization of a center for nonviolence through people who actually advocated for nonviolence, through people who were advocating for racial change, people who she felt embodied Dr. King's mission. And, you know, they often say beggars can't be choosers, but the King Center at the time was a huge financial undertaking. And the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. has the memorial that he has today was an act of perseverance and hard work that I don't think can really be understated. Because when I talk about the funeral and I talk about how the funeral happened, you have to understand that this was not an institutional funeral, unless you count, you know, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This was not a state-sanctioned funeral. This was not something on the level of what we have seen for other leaders. And it was very interesting for me to contrast this, having been an author who has written extensively about the death of John F. Kennedy, which happened five years before Dr. King, Obviously, you can draw a lot of parallels. It was so interesting to me to see the dichotomy between what happened with JFK. And JFK's gravesite alone took five years to plan. His gravesite was finally being opened right around the time that Dr. King was assassinated. Looking at a white man who admittedly was president of the United States, who was also assassinated, buried at Arlington National Cemetery and the way that he was treated and the architects commissioned for his grave. As opposed to what Dr. King received, which is no less impressive, not by any means, but is just very different in the way that it was executed. But in some ways, I think is more impressive because it is a collective hometown effort. And by this, I think you can extend it to the state of Georgia. It's not just Atlanta, but it was the state of Georgia, and it was institutions that were local that made his funeral possible. So let's start with a little basic background. Obviously, I'm hoping that most of you know this, but I never take any chances. Michael King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929. He was the second child of Michael and Alberta King. And you might be saying, wait a minute, are you confused? Yes. Martin Luther King Jr. did not become Martin Luther King Jr. until after 1934. His father was also a preacher and began to associate with Martin Luther during his preachings. He was on a preaching circuit came back and started to colloquially use the name. Martin Luther King Jr. would not officially change his name on his birth certificate until 1957. 
He was born in his parents' house, a two-story Victorian on Auburn Avenue. Auburn Avenue, particularly in the post-war years, and by this I mean post-Civil War years during Reconstruction, had become Atlanta's own black mecca. It was where the majority of the black businesses were, black banks, black newspapers. Um, I confess there are people far more educated on the history of Auburn Avenue, which frankly is fascinating. It is a beautiful street full of lots of culture, lots of history. If you are interested in this type of history, I, I highly recommend and I will I will give a shout out to to my friend Victoria, who I know you guys are very familiar with. She runs Archive Atlanta, a history podcast about the history of the city. And um, Auburn Avenue is one of her great passions. She does a lot of tours. She is extremely well educated. Last year, she got married in a building on Auburn Avenue. She can do a far better history of it than I do with some of the high points. So I do recommend you check out her podcast if you are interested in the history of that. Sadly, I don't have the time to go into all of the details, but let's put it this way. There is a reason that Dr. King ended up back on Auburn Avenue. And it's because in many ways it has always been the heartbeat of black Atlanta. Not to say that Atlanta, which even today is an overwhelmingly black city, doesn't have tons of neighborhoods that are black and are shaped by black culture, but Auburn Avenue is definitely the heart of it. From 1955 until his death in April of 1968, Martin Luther King was the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement, deeply ingrained with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, His life obviously has been well told. What I am interested in is more his death and what happened to him after his death. One thing I will say up front is that we are fortunate that this is one of those events that is incredibly well documented. Um, Bob Finch, who was the official photographer for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Flip Schulke in particular, the photographs that they took documenting the funeral are beyond astonishingly beautiful. They are both in black and white and in color. And I can't express how much I enjoyed just looking at the photographs and the story that they told. Because they are very personal and they are very intimate. And even though Dr. King is a powerful public figure, it makes the whole thing feel very intimate. Um... There's a whole series of photographs of Coretta Scott King planning the funeral from her bedroom and sitting on the bed talking to Bobby and Ethel Kennedy, talking to Ralph David Abernathy, talking to some of the greats of the era from her bedroom, um, talking on the phone, planning the funeral details. And it, it just feels incredibly intimate. Again, compared to what I know about the planning of the funeral of JFK, the contrast was very interesting to me because it gave it a very hometown, homegrown feel. But if you are interested, I I can't recommend that highly enough. There are plenty of them available online, but check them out um, to see the crowds, to see the groups, to see the utter silence, which I think is a very rare thing today of these funeral uh, arrangements. It's pretty remarkable. So as I'm sure most of you know, um, from listening to you too, if nothing else. Uh, On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. 
Andrew Young, who was one of Dr. King's top aides, um, as well as a future mayor of Atlanta and United States ambassador to the UN, said, quote, the bullet knocked him right out of his shoes. I saw the bullet enter the tip of his chin and went straight through to his spinal cord. I guess I realized then that he never heard the shot and probably never felt it. Following the shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, which is now the National Civil Rights Museum, you can visit it. It has been preserved exactly as it was when Dr. King was assassinated. I have been there. It is a very powerful experience. He was taken by ambulance to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 7.05 p.m. At that point, his aides, and you have to understand, so the funeral was planned by Wyatt T. Williams, uh, excuse me, Wyatt T. Walker, who was Dr. King's chief of staff, as well as Albert D. King, who was his younger brother. Dr. King had been constantly preparing for his funeral. If you have listened to the mountaintop speech, which he gave in Memphis right before he was assassinated, he was in Memphis um, in support of striking sanitation workers who were striking for better conditions and better pay. He knew he was going to die. He knew unequivocally that he was going to be assassinated. He often said that he would probably not make it to 40, which he was correct, Um It's interesting to me that they already had the wheels in motion so quickly, but also it was not to plan this grand funeral. It was not to plan a circus. But they also knew that the reality was is that he could be shot down, he could be killed at any point. And keep in mind that one of the things that's interesting about this is that Lyndon Johnson does not attend Dr. King's funeral. I'll talk more about people who do. But this is at the height of unrest in terms of Vietnam protests. And Dr. King had started to speak out against Vietnam. So there was a lot of fear that rioting would start not just over Dr. King's death, but over Vietnam. That's one of the reasons that Lyndon Johnson did not attend um, Hubert Humphreys, his vice president, attended in his place just basically over fear of violence because Lyndon Johnson was not popular at the time. So one of the most interesting stories that I actually read was about the funeral directors who handled Dr. King's body. So R.S. Lewis and Sons Funeral Home in Memphis, Tennessee has been in existence since 1914. They, uh, they just celebrated their 100th anniversary. It is a beautiful building, uh, an American Foursquare right downtown uh, on the corner of Beale and 4th Street in Memphis. Robert Lewis Sr. is an interesting guy. Um, he actually purchased the Memphis Red Sox, which is one of the teams in the Negro League in 1922. Um, he helped to finance the construction of Martin Stadium, which was later called Lewis Park um, in Memphis, and... It was a huge supporter of the black community, so much so that when other teams from the Negro League came to town to play against the Red Sox, he would actually put them up in the funeral home because all of the hotels were segregated and they didn't have a lot of options about where to stay. So the Lewis Funeral Home is a powerhouse in and of itself in Memphis. Um, but the account, and I'm going to read you at least part of this, um, because it's a very interesting story. Forty years after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the memories are still painful for R.S. Lewis. It just tore me apart, he said. Just like every other person, he was an idol to me, and I couldn't believe it. 
Lewis had met Dr. King for the first time just one day before the civil rights activist was assassinated. Lewis was stopped at a traffic light in Memphis when a car pulled up next to him. Inside were Dr. King and Lewis's pastor. I was pulling up at a red light and my pastor said to me, Robert, I want you to meet Dr. King. And I said, oh my gracious. And that was how we met. The next day, Dr. King's closest aides asked Lewis to prepare Dr. King's body for his funeral. The Memphis mortician found him faced with the most difficult task of his career. The bullet had done so much damage to Martin's face and the autopsy had also caused a great deal of despair, said Reverend Samuel Billy Kyles. Overnight, Lewis and his aides worked on 13 hours to prepare Dr. King to be seen by his family. He was in the hospital when Andrew Young called Coretta Scott King to tell her what had happened. She asked him, do you think I should come? And he said, yes. And it wasn't too long before he called her back and told her that there was no need for coming. Um, Fun fact, she did actually come to Memphis because he would be laid out in Lewis's funeral home. And uh, she actually came on a private jet that was chartered by the Kennedys. Lewis felt incredibly honored to be entrusted with Dr. King's body. When word spread, hundreds of people showed up at the Lewis funeral home for what became the first viewing and memorial service for the civil rights legend. Uh, sorry, WMC Five Action News. Uh, it was actually thousands. They, uh, they estimate about 4,000 people came through the funeral home while Dr. King laid in state there. Days later, when thousands attended King's funeral in Atlanta, Lewis had also traveled there and received a personal thank you note from the King family. For 40 years, Lewis's story stayed with him and just a few close people. Kyles believes Lewis passed up what could have been a fortune in book fees and recognitions. That is powerful, Kyle says. That is powerful that he never boasted of it or bragged of it. He just did it because it needed to be done. Lewis is beginning to take comfort in the fact that his story is finally being told. I don't want his memory to be forgotten. And any time it's brought out, I think people remember what is here and who the person is that's responsible for some of the things that we as a people have done. And I'm going to be reading a few more quotes than I might normally because I think that the language is so important. But um, I thought that was so interesting that this person who was a powerhouse for the black community in Memphis, you know, and I have read he did not charge for any of his services, um, that he considered it such an honor. And again, it's a very hometown feel to it, this funeral. And the idea that there is a camaraderie and that it was all about the black community coming together. Now, uh, Dr. King was placed in a bronze coffin that from what I've seen in the photographs appears to have had like a glass top. Um, It's interesting because I did read an account in Time Magazine that described the scene at the Lewis Funeral Home Quote, in Memphis, before it was carried south towards home, King's body lay in state at the R.S. Lewis and Sons funeral home in an open bronze casket. The black suit tidily pressed, the wound in his throat now all but invisible. Many who filed past could not control their tears. Some kissed King's lips, others reverently touched his face. A few women threw their hands in the air and cried out in agony. Mrs. King was a dry-eyed freeze of heartbreak. So the body was escorted by National Guardsmen to the flight. Now, what was waiting for King on the other end is interesting. 
Let's talk about Lester Maddox, because I am really not a fan of Lester Maddox, and you know I love to talk to you about people that I extremely dislike. So, Governor Lester Maddox of Georgia uh, refused not only a state funeral, but a lying in state of any kind for Martin Luther King. He branded him an enemy of the country, basically said King was a communist and a rabble-rouser. Yeah, not a fan. He refused to fly flags at half-mast for King until three days after the assassination, April 7th, 1968, Lyndon Johnson declared a national day of mourning, at which point, because it was a federal mandate, he was forced to lower the flags to half-mast. This is Atlanta. This is Martin Luther King's town. And that is the institutional racism that occurred after he was assassinated. There was an overwhelming opinion among Southern Dixcrats that he got what he deserved. And that they certainly were not going to celebrate such a man. And I bring this up, first of all, because it disgusts me. But second of all, It's amazing to me to have seen the difference in the morning of John Lewis that happened now. And that is something that has changed. I don't think that John Lewis expected what he was given upon his death in terms of the mourning, in terms of the lying in state, in terms of the pomp and circumstance. I don't think that he wanted or necessarily expected that, but he certainly was owed it. So it's amazing to me about how divided the country was and how deep the institutional racism in the South was that despite the overwhelming presence of people, and I'm going to talk about some of the people that were at the funeral in just a minute, this still occurred. And to take it a step further... So what he decided to do was he stationed 64 state troopers in full riot gear on the steps of the Capitol. Now, it's worth noting that he is not the only one doing this. So he barricaded himself in his office at the Capitol. Starting to remind me of somebody else I can think of. The city hall, on the other hand, had been draped in black bunting. So this is important to say that this, this is a Governor Maddox problem. This is not necessarily an everybody problem. This is a Governor Maddox problem. Surrounded the building with these state troopers and ordered them to, quote, shoot them down and stack them up if needed. Now, it is important to note After Martin Luther King's body was returned to Atlanta, it laid in state for five days in the Sisters Chapel at Spelman College, one of the historically black colleges of Atlanta, where thousands of people filed past to see Dr. King and to pay their respects to Dr. King. Not once in that five days was there unrest. There was no violence. There was no rioting. Nothing. And this is where my real problem comes in, because I understand that people are racist. I understand that. It's not something, unfortunately, that I personally can change. And this happened more than 50 years ago. But the willful ignorance to believe when you see people who 
want nothing more than to mourn a leader, a nonviolent leader who they respected and who they followed. At what point can you just stop being an ass about it? Really? It's worth noting that Governor Lester Maddox is buried in Sandy Springs. I'm fairly certain nobody visits his grave. Maybe his family. I don't know. The amount of people who come to Atlanta is is really stunning. Um, so they say tens of thousands. I would say probably close to 100,000 non-Atlantans pour into Atlanta. Um, Atlanta at that time is a much smaller city. The transit system provided free rides to the airports and train stations just to keep things moving. All of the hotels were full. So what they did was that colleges, churches, private homes, everybody opened their doors. Um, One of the local black radio stations put out a call for help and food. Um, Civil rights leader um, Zenona Clayton told the Atlanta Magazine, quote, I don't think that anybody paid for food in this city for two or three days. So again, this feeling that it's, it's a very extended family, that it's a very close-knit community, definitely carries through. So I do have the original death announcement for Dr. Martin Luther King which I thought was interesting. They actually reprinted it on the 50th anniversary of um, Dr. King's assassination. Services for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. will be held for the immediate family and members of Ebenezer Baptist Church at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, April 9th, 1968, from the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Reverend Ralph David Abernathy, Abernathy officiating. The procession will leave Ebenezer at 11 o'clock and proceed to the Morehouse College campus for the service, which is open to all at 1 p.m. Dr. King is survived by his wife, Mrs. Coretta Scott King, children Yolanda Nenise, age 12, Martin Luther III, age 10, Dexter Scott, age 7, Bernice Albertine, age 5, parents, Reverend and Mrs. Dr. Martin Luther King Sr., Sister and brother-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Farris Sr. and children, Isaac Jr., Angela Christine. Brother and sister-in-law, Reverend and Mrs. A.D. Williams King and children, Alveda Celeste, A.D. Williams II, Derek Barber, Esther Darlene, Vernon Christopher. Three uncles, four aunts, a large number of relatives, and countless thousands of admiring and loving friends and followers the world over. For those who would like to express their appreciation to Dr. King and his family by sending flowers, it is suggested that contributions be made to the Martin Luther King Memorial Fund. This fund will be used to perpetrate and perpetuate the ideas of Dr. King. The remains will be viewed at the church until 9 a.m. Tuesday, entombment at Southview Cemetery. Family will assemble at 234 Sunset Avenue Northwest. Hanley's Bell Funeral Home and Marcellus Thornton Mortician in charge. So there's a couple of things that if you are not from Atlanta, if you're not familiar with black culture in Atlanta, you might not be familiar with. So the first of all is that Morehouse College, again, like Spelman, one of the historically black colleges of Atlanta, was Dr. King's alma mater. The second, Southview Cemetery. I will talk more extensively about this. 234 Sunset Avenue was the adult home of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Very important and only fairly recently saved from demolition which 
to me is staggering. Again, think about those photographs taken in that house of them planning the funeral. Um, Hanley's, one of the historically black funeral homes here in Atlanta, very, very significant. When I get to talking about Southview, they're very much integrated with this. If you don't come from a historically segregated city or a city that the historic segregation is no longer very evident, some of this might be difficult to understand. But these are institutions because in the Reconstruction era, you have this blossoming of black culture where they essentially form their own business communities, their own thriving history in the city. And these institutions are a big part of that whether it is a historically black college where you have the opportunity to learn and be educated or a funeral home that serves the black population. All of these features are really integral to this story. The other interesting thing about the funeral is that the police were barely involved. So the Atlanta police did things like closing roads and that type of work. But for the most part, this crowd of close to 150 to 200,000 people who pour into the city. And again, you can see photographs of them walking, just waves of people walking through downtown Atlanta. They were not in charge of those people. The police did not keep them in line. What they did was essentially close off the roads and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference essentially policed the funeral themselves, which I think, given the sheer volume, is extremely impressive. So the funeral, it's worth noting, and one of the interesting things I learned during the research for this was that the Academy Awards was actually scheduled for the night before Dr. King's funeral, and so many people who were in attendance, um, notably Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier, who Sidney Poitier was nominated for not one, but two Academy Awards that year for Look Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night, both key civil rights era films, said that they would not attend if the ceremony went on as planned. So the Academy Award made the virtually unprecedented decision to actually delay Um, And when you see the list of folks who attended, particularly from the entertainment community, it's no wonder. Um, So some of the more prominent ones, um, Harry Belafonte, um, singer and actor, is in almost every photograph that you see with credit Scott King. Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Dizzy Gillespie, Aretha Franklin, James Baldwin, um, Alice Walker. Another thing I did not realize, apparently the stress of walking in the funeral procession. She and her husband had driven from Jackson, Mississippi. Following Dr. King's funeral, Alice Walker actually had a miscarriage. Diana Carroll, Thurgood Marshall, who the decade before had argued Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, Carl Stokes and um, Richard Hatcher, who if you're not familiar, they're two of the first black mayors of cities in the United States. Uh, Carl Stokes was mayor of Cleveland and Richard Hatcher was mayor of Gary, Indiana. Richard Nixon, uh, Eartha Kitt, Ozzie Davis, Sidney Poitier, who I already mentioned, Ruby D, Marlon Brando, Bill Cosby, Paul Newman, Louis Armstrong, the Kennedys. So both Bobby and Ethel, Ted Kennedy, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis all were in attendance. Um, my favorite is all of the references to future presidents, um, where they talk a lot about that, which I thought was interesting. 
uh, Eugene McCarthy, Walter Mondale, Herbert Humphreys, all of these future presidential candidates, both successful and unsuccessful. Well, in that case, all unsuccessful. Uh, and lastly, Rosa Parks. Also, pretty much every, I'm not going to go through every civil rights leader that was there, but they were all there. <laughs> um, but just the staggering number. So this is not some obscure little funeral. And I know I'm probably giving a little bit more time to the funeral than I normally would, but I think it's worth noting. So the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church on Auburn Avenue was where both Dr. King and his father were preachers. Um, it was a private ceremony, but there was roughly 1,300 people in attendance, which is a pretty big private funeral. Um, the interesting thing that you may not have realized, and again, I'm saying this because I learned some things and there are some things that I know that I realized that not everybody might know, is that Dr. King actually eulogized himself at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Ralph Day Abernathy, Abernathy officiated but the actual eulogy was a replaying of what was known as the drum major sermon, which King had two years, uh, excuse me, not two years, two months before his death on February 4th, 1968, issued at Ebenezer. And it's very interesting in terms of, you know, what Dr. King believed and what he obviously wanted for his funeral and his memory to be. If you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind but I just want to leave a committed life behind. After that, there was a roughly three-mile procession from the Ebenezer Baptist Church to Morehouse College. Um, the interesting thing is I've read a lot of accounts that they talk about it, like literally all you could hear was the stepping of feet of how quiet it was. There was some breakouts into different spirituals and things like that, particularly We Shall Overcome. Dr. Martin Luther King was not pulled in a traditional hearse. He was pulled in a farm wagon pulled by two mules. And while the idea of being in a horse-drawn carriage, um, obviously, again, a parallel to the Kennedy funeral with the riderless horse and things like that, Rather than this being a royal funeral, rather than this being part of the kind of elevated culture, this is tying him to his ancestors. You know, his mother, Alberta King, was descended from sharecroppers in Stockbridge, Georgia. This was tying him to the grassroots of his followers, of his mission, that he was a simple man. And even though obviously he's not being buried simply, there is this humility about it and if you go to the king center today that wooden farm wagon is on display um at morehouse benjamin mays the president um mays actually has a lot in common with dr king it's interesting um the way that they were moved they were both originally buried in the same place and they were both later moved um benjamin mays is now buried at morehouse um eulogized him and um, Mahalia Jackson sang Dr. King's favorite hymn, Take My Hand. 
um, precious lord. At this point, the procession leads to Southview Cemetery. So you might be like, yes, we're finally talking about cemeteries. I put all of that into perspective. Uh, again, some of the photos from Southview are pretty crazy. Um, Southview is a decent-sized cemetery, um, but it's amazing to see, like, people are standing on top of mausoleums trying to get a better view. I mean, it's still just crazy, and especially having been there so recently for John Lewis's funeral, the observations that I made, um, like, I was trying to think about it. Because that was always one of the fears with JFK. It's one of the reasons he ended up at Arlington was that they knew that there was going to be massive crowds. But I guess people were not intimidated by this. I can't really speak to that. But So Southview Cemetery here in Atlanta was incorporated on April 21st, 1886. It is the oldest African-American stockholder company in the United States. There were other African-American businesses that predated, but this was the oldest incorporated stockholder organization. It was started by six members, and it's so interesting because they really speak to the spirit of Reconstruction era in Atlanta. So Jacob McKinley and George Graham, who were both carpenters, the Reverend Robert Grant, who was also a blacksmith and a drayman, the Reverend John Render, who was also a drayman. Charles Morgan and Albert Watts, who were both grocers. So they were business owners, but many of them were also preachers. The sons of slaves. There's conflicting information about whether or not they were all enslaved themselves. Um, it's hard to tell from their age. But in a world where everything was segregated and where the burial grounds afforded to African-Americans were really not great. They wanted to institute a safe, clean, beautiful spot that was all their own to bury their dead. I want to talk more about the situation prior to that in Atlanta, but I don't necessarily have time right now. But just understand, this was something that they wanted to do on their own. And their goal was to have a cemetery as beautiful and as clean and as lovely as any of those that were afforded to whites, which they were not allowed to be buried in. Now, there has been a wonderful book written by um, D.L. Henderson here in Atlanta about the history of Southview. And one of my favorite quotes from it comes from one of its residents, the Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, who died in 1815. He was a member of the state legislature during the Reconstruction era, which, if you know anything about the early black legislators who were elected in the Reconstruction era, unfortunately, Jim Crow and, well, let's just say it, the Klan put an end to that early era of it. Um, there's actually a really good podcast that Mo Rocca did for his podcast, Mo Obituaries about these early black legislators. I would very much recommend if you're interested in the history of that. But the bishop was also a bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and he said, quote, there is no such place as white heaven, where every angel, cherub, and seraph is white. If there were, it would be a dull, monotonous place. So Southview was a very important space 
Whether or not you're familiar with it, prior to the end of slavery, funerals were often one of the few times when slaves were allowed to gather. So between the religious importance of this, the symbolic importance of being able to own your own grave plot and be part of an incorporated company that would guarantee that it was well-maintained and taken care of, there's a lot of importance in Southview. And so that was what was chosen as the place of Dr. King's initial burial. His crypt uh, is interesting. So the crypt that Dr. King was originally buried in was the first of, as I count it, four crypts. I could be wrong. It could only be three. But from what I could tell, there were four separate crypts that Dr. King was buried in. And this one is interesting, actually, because it is still there. So the crypt that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was buried in at Southview is still there. It is now where his father and mother are buried. They are buried at Southview. The crypt was designed by the Roberts Marble Company, founded in 1898 in Ballground, Georgia. They were longtime owners of a stone mill producing high-quality funerary monuments. They moved to East Ponce de Leon here in Atlanta, close to the Fox Theater, um, one of our great landmarks in the early 1900s. And in the 1930s, they bought out the Red Brothers Monument Company on Marietta Street near Georgia Tech. I say this because I do know I have a lot of Atlanta listeners who this will mean something more to. Normally, I wouldn't get so technical. Um, but I'm just trying to kind of reiterate that this is a hometown affair. This is a local monument company. As opposed to J- the materials for JFK's gravesite, which come from all over the place. The slate comes from one place. The granite comes from another. It's not all local. In 1959, Jim and Barbara Shields buy the business, so it becomes Robert's Shields. Um, 1971, their son Brandon graduates from UGA. He starts working there and takes over in 1974. Um, in 1978, they moved to an office on Brady Avenue off Howell Mill Road, so like northwest Atlanta. Um, but their production for a long time stayed on Marietta Street until 1981. All production moved to the north side. Today, they are located at 850 William Street in Marietta, which is about 15 miles north of Atlanta. Still in existence, still producing things, and they have produced all of the subsequent crypts since the initial one. So not only did they design the original one, they designed the most recent one, which is a double crypt for Dr. King and his wife, which was erected in 2006 following Coretta Scott King's death. It was strongly felt that Dr. King should be buried in a crypt made of Georgia marble. This is the reason that they used a local monument company. Again, the feeling is very hometown. It's very homegrown. All of the moving parts of this. So, how long does Dr. King stay at Southview? Not long. On the first anniversary of both his, um, so his 40th birthday is celebrated in 1969. About 300 people gather at Southview. There are lots of photographs of this too. There is an eternal flame installed there. The eternal flame actually has a security guard um, who protects it. But the long-term vision is always to have him moved to the location of what will be the Dr. Martin Luther King Memorial Park. And so I had a very hard time finding this article. Um, I'd searched so many permutations like King Burial Site, 
all different things. Finally, I find it. At Ebenezer, King's body taken to new site on January 14th, 1970. Now, this is two years after the assassination. It is buried at the bottom of page seven of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mrs. Martin Luther King Jr. and her four children were present during the pre-dawn hours Tuesday as King's body in its crypt was transferred from Southview Cemetery to a site near the Ebenezer Baptist Church. The removal of the crypt, which bears the words, free at last, thank God almighty I'm free at last, was the first step towards building the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Park. Permanent entombment will eventually take place in an area near the Ebenezer Church where King preached, which will contain the Memorial Center. Mrs. King, with the approval of the center's board of trustees, chose the time of the transferring of her husband's body so the site could be officially inaugurated on January 15th, King's 41st birthday. The widow requested the transfer of the body be made at night so that it could be done without fanfare as a matter of taste and dignity. A service commemorating the birthday of the civil rights leader will be held Thursday at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Afterwards, those attending will file past the new crypt. The main speaker will be Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, President Emeritus of Morehouse College and the new head of the Atlanta Board of Education. Like I said, a tiny little snippet that if you didn't know what you were looking for, you would have totally missed it. So the first crypt at the park um, is surrounded by a circle of white raked gravel with like a low little almost decorative garden fence. There is a concrete walkway around it and then a circle of kind of grass and it's all enclosed by a white picket fence. It looks nothing like it does today. They say he was moved in the same crypt. I'm going to say no because I have seen pictures of people dressed clearly in 1970s clothes in front of his crypt. So his crypt at Southview was sort of stepped. The one that was initially at the park was just a square block. So they're not the same. They might have the same quote on them. Also, different decoration. The one that's at the park has like this stylized like crossed feathers or laurel leaves. I can't really tell from the pictures. It also has a much larger, like very bold block lettering. And it's interesting because I read that when they buried Martin Luther King, the initial tomb didn't actually even have the inscription on it yet because it happened so quickly. They had stenciled it on and they went back and they did the inscription later. It doesn't make sense to me that they would move it and then move it back. So I don't think that the initial crypt ever left Southview. And it would be in use just several years later because Alberta King herself was murdered in the Ebenezer Baptist Church by a gunman who broke in while she was sitting at the organ playing the Lord's Prayer in 1974. Uh, Her document, uh, her death and uh, funeral equally well documented in the annals. So unfortunately, you know, she dies just six years after her son. So the crypt is reused pretty quickly. From what I can see, the Memorial Park was finished in 1976. There's some debate about if it was 76 or 77. Like I said, this is not terribly well covered by the papers always. At this point, they installed the reflecting pool, which is there today. It is a series of kind of like cascading waterfalls, and the tomb is in the center of the reflecting pool. It is on a raised dais. Um, They replaced the raked gravel with brick and concrete. Um, It's beautifully lit today. 
I haven't seen enough pictures to know if it was always kind of illuminated at night. This new crypt on the front, rather than having those crossed feathers, it now has kind of like stylized corners. Um, very simple, very tasteful white marble. The font is a little bit smaller. It's less bold and blocky than the initial tomb. So now we're up to the third tomb. And it will stay that way for quite some time, like I said, until the death of Coretta Scott King in February of 2006, at which point it was replaced with a double crypt for both her and Dr. King. And the double crypt greatly resembles the previous 1976 crypt, except because it's double now, they both have stylized corners around their names. You can definitely see lots of pictures of this. Um, but from what I can tell, I think there have been four crypts. Not incredibly well documented, but from what I can see, which props to Dr. King, that is way more crypts than most people ever get. In 1977, so when the park was completed, they added a permanent eternal flame. It's kind of directly across from the pool, so it's not right there in the center. Um, very impressive, quite large. Um, frankly, puts JFK's eternal flame to shame. It's huge. Um... The construction of this park, um, to kind of conclude this, it's so interesting. Um, so I read this one article from September 28th of 1969. An effort to seek President Nixon's help for the memorial to the late memorial in Atlanta to the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has been abandoned because of what the King family believes is the president's indifferent attitude towards black and poor people. The collapse of seven months of unpublicized negotiations, initially encouraged by Nixon himself, was outlined Saturday by Coretta Scott King, widow of the Nobel Prize winning civil rights leader, in an interview here. Mrs. King said, quote, We feel that to get the federal support for a memorial would have been a beautiful thing, not only for our country, but for the oppressed people throughout the world. But President Nixon's attitude, his lack of real concern, suggests that we are not going to be involved in this racist reflex. A White House consultant in Washington informed of Mrs. King's statement said that this was the first time he had heard that the King family planned to break off talks. It's interesting because you read a lot about this, that there is a lot of concern about this, that they are very much want to, um, they want to have something that fully embodies Dr. King's vision and she is not willing to compromise on it. Mrs. King said she talked to the president by telephone from Atlanta early in February to ask his help for legislation for the Freedom Memorial Park in the downtown two blocks that contain her husband's birthplace, the Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he and his father preached, and which will contain his grave. Mr. Nixon seemed to like the idea, even sounded enthusiastic. He said he would send his best man for the job to talk to me and promised that the plan would receive immediate attention from the White House. A few weeks later, Robert H. Finch, Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, visited Ms. King in Atlanta. He offered his own department's help for the creation of a Black Studies program as part of the memorial. And then it kind of goes on, like this like push and pull negotiations. Um, I will say that you have to give Jimmy Carter credit, because he and Rosalind Carr... When you, like, read through the whole history, and I can't get too much into the history because it is, like, really thorny and it's complex and just overall it's it's a struggle. Um, but 
Rosalind King, uh, excuse me, Rosalind Carter definitely was a huge advocate, not just for this, but also for the creation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the federal holiday. Um, And I found an article from 1980. First Lady Rosalind Carr said Tuesday that the president joins her in a renewed commitment to work for a national holiday honoring the January 15th birth of the late Martin Luther King Jr. Mrs. Carter's remarks at the two-hour memorial service before an overflowing crowd at Ebenezer Baptist Church came only hours after the marble front of King's crypt was defaced during the night with streaks of red, black, and green paint. Following the services, about 5,000 people marched one mile through downtown to the state capitol, chanting, We Want a National Holiday, and waving signs favoring a national and state holiday in memory of King, who was assassinated 12 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee. When I left Washington this morning, it was a holiday for the school children there. And you and I and the president are committed to a national holiday for Martin Luther King Jr., Mrs. Carter said. Hope, faith, and love is what we celebrate today. We must have a national holiday to commemorate this great man of hope, faith, and love. The proposal for the national holiday for King lost twice in the House last year and failed to make much progress in the Senate. However, the date is a holiday in the District of Columbia. And this article was actually accompanied by a photograph of Andrew Young, who was the ambassador to the UN at that time, um, at the crypt right after it was defaced. So it's so interesting because I also kind of looked. I didn't see any other articles about the vandalism. And as far as I know, there have not been a massive amount of vandalism attempts, but I'm sure there were and they just weren't reported. Wouldn't surprise me at all. The gravesite today is a very peaceful place. There's a lot to be said for it. Um... (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of the reflecting pool. I don't understand why we need to make the background of pools like this fake blue to make them look more blue. I don't necessarily understand that design decision, but I also didn't design it, so it is what it is. It is blindingly blue. I will post some pictures. Like, blue that does not exist in nature. The reflecting pool around the crypt. But the crypt is very peaceful. It's very dignified. It certainly has a very similar feel to the crypts at presidential libraries from what I've seen. It's a public memorial. Part of me is sad that he doesn't still rest in Southview because Southview, and I know I gave kind of short shrift to Southview because Southview could be multiple episodes in and of itself. There is such a rich and varied history there. But I understood why his body was moved. I talk a lot about memorials and what they symbolize and what their importance is. And I think that Dr. King's body and him being back at Auburn Avenue and being back at the center of the black community in Atlanta was very important. That's not to say that so much of the black community doesn't rest at Southview. Obviously, that is where John Lewis chose to be buried. It is where countless other leaders who might not have the same national acclaim as Dr. King, are buried. And his parents are buried there. They remain at Southview. So they are part of that collective community of close to 80,000 black Atlantans who chose to be entombed there. But I think that you can't ignore that memorials are important. And you can't ignore that the visibility of King's grave and as a rallying point 
being able to see it. It is open to the public, so you do not need to buy a ticket of any kind. You can walk up and see it. There are no gates. There are no restrictions. Like, anyone can walk up and see it. And I think that being in a public place and giving a person, like, after death, giving a person to the people is very important. And that's where I think, like, with the parallel of the Kennedy gravesite, which even, like, Arlington, you can't just walk into Arlington. There's a decent amount of security and there's special parking and everything. President Kennedy arguably is less accessible than Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. is right there. Um, Also, I think that the reflecting pool, however ugly the blue might be, is a nice deterrent for people who might have, shall we say, uncharitable views and want to throw paint. Um, Putting it in the middle of the water is actually a great idea because it adds an extra level of protection. I think giving King back to the people, even though the struggle is ongoing, even though rampant racism is still a huge problem, not just here in Atlanta, but across the country. Um, But those KKK boys that like to gather out at Stone Mountain are particularly a problem here in Atlanta. I think having it as a public symbol, I think of having it as one of the most visited sites in Atlanta is important. It sends an important message that It's not over. So I want to close. I read a couple of eulogies to Martin Luther King, and none of them really spoke to me on any level. So I actually looked at a eulogy that Dr. King himself delivered, and it was for the slain children of Birmingham, or the martyred children of Birmingham, who were killed um, in 1963. And this was a eulogy he delivered at the funeral of three of the four girls, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, um, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. They were killed on September 15th. And if you follow along on my Instagram, I I did a little little feature on the September 15th. But I really like Dr. King's words, so I'm going to finish with those because I think he said it best. It is almost impossible to say anything that console you at this difficult hour and remove the clouds of deep disappointment which are floating in your mental skies. But I hope you can find a little consolation from the universality of this experience. Death comes to every individual. There is an amazing democracy about death. It is not an aristocracy for only some people, but a democracy for all the people. Kings die and beggars die. Rich men die and poor men die. Old men die and young men die. Death comes for the innocent as it comes for the guilty. Death is the irreducible common denominator of all men. So, in a difficult time where we still struggle with the same inherent unfortunately ever-present issues of racism and divide, hopefully Dr. King's story and his very central gravesite and the perseverance of community in wanting to memorialize a leader can be an inspirational story. I don't like to get overly sappy, but you know what? I often divorce myself from people. I talk about cemeteries as institutions. I talk about them as urban planning. 
I talk about them as a necessity, as a sanitation measure, as a arboretum. There are lots of things I talk about cemeteries as. And as opposed to my comrades in the field who are also cemetery podcasters, they almost exclusively focus on people. I very seldom do. And there's a reason for that. Because I, like Dr. King, see death as a great equalizer. I see death, though, as something that should not be discarded, but rather celebrated. And I try to look at how cemeteries do that in a myriad of different ways, how they innovate, how they change. But I think that every once in a while, you do have something that is such a symbol, like Dr. King's body, that does change things, that changes the way that people look. And that... I hope that because for the early 10 years following his assassination, he really couldn't rest easy because his body, even though he was no longer alive, still had a lot of work to do. It had a lot of work to do as a symbol, as a message of nonviolence, as a call to peace. So hopefully now, more than 50 years after his assassination, he can find some sort of rest. And he can be a reminder that... While death is the great equalizer, it's still important because it gives life meaning. As always, thank you for your ratings and reviews. I would still love a few more. I know it takes time. I know it does. But, you know, it's January. It's cold out. There's only so much Netflix you can watch. If you do have a couple of minutes, I would love a rating and review. It does help me be more searchable. I do like to go in and search myself occasionally on platforms just to see how easy it is to find me and the more ratings and reviews I get seriously the easier it is to find me when I come up that way you have to scroll less if you're looking for me and when you recommend me to all your friends it's easier for them to find me too if you are interested in following along on social media tomb of the view podcast on facebook tomb period with period a period view on instagram um, you can watch me continue to fight Confederate Monument supporters, which is my new favorite hobby. Um, in addition to that, if you would like to suggest a topic or you want to get in touch with me for any reason, Podcast at gmail.com. Um, I am still waiting on my new podcasting equipment, which has been stuck in mail limbo for way longer than I would like. Um, but once it does come, hopefully some interviews. I'm excited about that. In the meantime, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.